chapter 4, verses 31 to 44. It'll be up on the screen from the international version of the Bible. We're continuing our series on Luke. And now we begin reading at verse 31. Where Dr. Luke records for us, Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching, because his words had authority. In the synagogue there was a man possessed by a demon, an impure spirit. He cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. Then the demon threw the man down before them all and came out without injuring him. All the people were amazed and said to each other, What words these are! What authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits! And they come out! And the news about him spread throughout the surrounding area. Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever. And they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. At sunset, the people brought to, to Jesus all their various kinds of illness. And laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God! But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him and when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also because that is why I was sent. And he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. May God bless to us that reading of his holy word. So we're continuing our series in Luke's Gospel and we come today to look just at this point. The authority of Jesus. The authority of Jesus. During an arm exercise, a young lieutenant was driving down a muddy track in his Land Rover when he encountered another army officer stuck fast in the mud. Behind the wheel, the steering wheel, was a very red-faced colonel. Seeing the chance for some smarty points, this young junior officer got out of his car and very smartly walked to the side of the Land Rover and tapped on the window and the colonel wound his window down and the officer said, Excuse me, sir, he says, um, it seems... Uh, it seems your car is stuck, sir. To which the colonel replied, No, my man, it seems your car is stuck, and gave him the keys. <laughs> Some people have authority. They have it in the way they conduct themselves, in their voice, in the way they are. For example, in most men's lives, the authority is seen in two words. The wife. I heard a story about a man who was married to an extremely bossy woman, bossy woman and he did everything his wife told him just for, of course, for a happy life. Um, and one day his wife invited round to the house members of a local women's institute. 
And so to have a nice quiet afternoon with the women and not be disturbed by her husband, the wife insisted that the husband stand in the, clonic, in the closet for the duration of the visit. And so he duly went inside the closet and she shut the door and left him there. And during their bridge game, the ladies' club spoke of the authority the women welded over their husbands. Not to be outdone, the hostess informed the other guests that not only did she have authority over her husband, but at this very moment, her husband was in the closet in the very room they were sitting in. And to prove it, she said, Bob, come out of the closet. But there was no answer. Bob, she cried in a louder voice, come out of this closet, come out of the closet this very instant. But again, there was no response. Finally, going purple face, she said, Bob, get out of that closet right now. I won't, came the voice from the closet. I'll show you who's boss. I wonder the question is, what, who has authority in your life? When you come to the big decisions you make, who has authority? Where do you go? Is it a trusted confidant? Is it a member of your family? It could be a mother or father if they're still alive. Where do you go for authority, for guidance in your life? As Christians, our main authority should surely always, always be God. Our main authority should always be the Lord Jesus Christ, who we claim to follow because we're Christians, Christianis, followers of Christ, followers of Jesus. And this passage in Luke chapter 4 is all about authority. It's all about the authority of Jesus. And the first thing we see in this passage is this. We see authority in the presence of Jesus. In the presence of Jesus. Last week we were reading from, uh, from uh, uh, the, the, the earlier part of his gospel and we had the story of Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. And he goes to his local fellowship, literally his home church, his home synagogue. And he goes in there and he's asked to speak. And so as a visiting rabbi, he stands up and the scroll is given to him from Isaiah the prophet and he goes down the scroll and he finds Isaiah 61 and he reads those wonderful words about the Spirit of God being upon him. And last week we talked about the manifesto of Jesus. And after he read that, he sat down in the position of a teaching rabbi and he began to say these words, very words are fulfilled in your, in, in your hearing. He's saying, I am that man who's been anointed by the Holy Spirit to bring this message of relief, release. This message of good news of the kingdom of God. And then he began to describe the good news. And the people in Nazareth were hankering after some kind of miracle because Jesus was like some kind of ancient David Blaine. People wanted to see magic. They wanted simply the miracles, the, the, the mystery, the magic. And Jesus told them he wasn't there for that. And he sampled, he gave them two illustrations where God had blessed Gentile people and he quotes the famous story of Elijah going across the, to the widow from Zarephath and, and providing um, oil that never runs out and, of course, saving her son and bringing her son back from death. And Zarephath was a Sidonian town. She was a Gentile. And then he describes the story of a healing, of a leper. And the leper was a man called Naaman. And Naaman was a Syrian. And God heals Naaman of his leprosy by baptising by washing himself in the river Jordan. And this was pure heresy for the people of Nazareth. In fact, for any Jew, because 
He was suggesting that God was compassionate and God will heal in the Gentiles. The view of many rabbis at that time was the only role of the Gentile, the non-Jewish people, non-Jewish person, was to become a coal in the fires of hell. There was no salvation for those who weren't Jewish. That's what they believed. But God had put them, the Jewish people, on the planet to be a blessing. He blessed them to be the chosen people and the message the chosen people were given was to be a blessing to others, to bring the salvation of God to the other nations. But they've become static in their blessing and wanted more of God's blessing, not for other people, but for themselves. And when Jesus began to suggest that God wanted to bless the Gentiles, they pick up stones and they march him out of the synagogue and they take him to a hill and they're going to throw him down. We can read about it in this passage. We're told this. And all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of a hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. That's what they often did before they stoned you. They throwed you down so you break your legs or become so badly injured you couldn't walk and then they would stone you. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He had an authority. The very presence of God was in the Son of God. And so when they tried to throw him down, he stood there and they could do nothing and he walked through them because he had an authority that came from his Father God. He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Let me ask you a question. Are you God's man or woman? Do you have the authority of God's presence in your life? Are you seeking that authority, that sense of God's presence? Because if you have God's presence in your life, other people will see it and feel it and sense it. We are a powerful people if we choose to use the power that God has given us. But he's not recognised in Nazareth. His friends and family, those who knew him, throw him out. Well, don't throw him out. He leaves Nazareth. And you know, the tragedy in this situation is he never returns to Nazareth. They rejected him. And God gave them their wishes. And the irony in this passage, when we come to this part we just read, in the, in the latter part of chapter 4, we find that the, the people that recognise the authority of Jesus are the demons, are the dark side, if you like. Because we're told he next enters the synagogue down beside the Sea of Capernaum. And there we are told in the synagogues there was a man possessed by a demon and in pure spirit. And he cried out at the top of his voice, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God. The demons instantly recognised his authority. And so later on, when the Sabbath is finished, People bring their, their, the ill people and the demon-possessed people to him and we're told that they often leave by crying out. Demons came out of many people shouting, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. The demons instantly recognised the authority of God upon the son of God. And they came out declaring who he was. And so we had to silence them to stop them spreading that message because the whole view of who the Messiah was was very confused in the nation at that time. He is the powerful Son of God. 
You see, the authority of Jesus is not to be messed with. He is a powerful and great Son of God. But we must not take for granted who He is. He may be our Saviour. He may be the friend of sinners. But He is always, always our Lord. The demons are terrified of Jesus. When they actually are making this statement, it's a statement of fear. Have you come to destroy us? They knew the power of the name of God. They knew the power of the name of Jesus. They were terrified in the presence of Jesus because they knew they were on the losing side. And sometimes I wonder of the church if we realise that we are on the winning side. Because we don't walk around declaring our faith the way we should. We hang our faith and almost admit we're a Christian as if it was something to be ashamed of. Brothers and sisters, you are on the winning side. One day when Jesus returns, he will come to claim his own and you are part of his own. But we are going to be a very small church if we don't declare the praises and glories of Jesus and carry the authority of Jesus into this world in which God has placed us. Because we are here for a purpose. We are blessed to be a blessing. We are given good news to bring good news. When was the last time you spoke to someone about Jesus? When was the last time you shared your faith? When was the last time you prayed for someone? And you may say, oh, Cole, I'm not, I'm not an evangelist. Well, I'm not an evangelist either. You may say, well, I haven't got those gifts. It's not a gift. It's a command. I was in a church once, a very charismatic church. We didn't stay there for very long because they were totally, totally off, out, out their tree. It was in the early days of cats and the charismatic movement. And they just hadn't got the balance between word and spirit. Because that's the way we need to be as Christians. Of the word of God and full of the spirit of God. We've got to have balance in our lives. And I was in there and this, this, this church we were at used to be a ch- Christian school as well uh, during the week. And they were looking for people to put the chairs out. And so, as ever, very practical, we were all putting the chairs out and there was someone there who wasn't putting the chairs out and one of the elders went up to him and says, can you put the chairs out, please? And the person turned around and says, well, I can't. Why can't you put the chairs out? It's not my gift. <laughs> Amazing gift that is. I haven't got that gift of putting the chairs out. It doesn't stop me from putting the chairs out. Seriously, that's what they said. It's not my gift. That's not an answer. That is just an excuse. Because if Jesus said, go into the world, he then said, and I will be with you. You don't do it in your strength. If you did it in your strength, you might as well forget about it because none of us have got the strength to convert this world. But Jesus didn't say, go and do it in your strength. He says, go and do it in my strength. I will give you the words. You know, if you want to see the glory of God, you've got to take a few risks. And if you take a few risks, put yourself out there, you will see the glory of God. I've spoken to many people about Jesus Christ and I've been fearful of doing it but it's been incredibly wonderful when you suddenly see that God has been there already and God will give you the words. I would not be a minister if I stood before you in my own strength because Cole Maynard has nothing to offer you. I don't. I've got a couple of degrees, a lot of experience in Christian ministry but I've got no power in my life. All the power in my life comes from God. The authority I have in my life comes from him. I have nothing. This is the church of Jesus Christ. And we offer people, not you, we offer people Jesus. And he has the power. If only we step out in faith and take that name. Jesus is a name of authority. That's why the demons cried out. 
And that's why James says, you believe there's one God good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You know, we're coming to Halloween and there's a shop across the road, it's got hideous things in its window, demonic clowns and things like that. I hate this. And I hate children being duped into this whole idea that Halloween is something that's comical. It is not comical. I don't joke about war, and I've been in war zones. I've seen people torn apart by explosions and, and, and held bodies in my arms. I don't joke about war. I don't joke about demonic forces because I've seen the damage and devastation they cause to people. And it's not something we should be celebrating. It's not about pumpkins and funny masks. It's about lives and addictions. It's about the work of open door. Do we believe that the young men and women that come into that place have addictions with alcohol and have addictions with um, drugs and what have you, do you think that's something that God has given them? They've been addicted by God? Of course not. That's, a, that's an example of the work of the evil one. And Satan is at work. I don't celebrate the work of Satan. This time of year annoys me at people's naivety about, about this. C.S. Lewis, one of, my, uh, one of my heroes, wrote those wonderful books about Narnia where Mr. Beaver says to Lucy, says, Susan, I mean, says, Aslan is a lion, says Susan. The lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. And I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous meeting the lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. People, Jesus isn't safe. He's not some Labrador of God. He's the lion of Judah. And lions roar. They are the king of the jungle. And we mustn't forget that our Lord Jesus Christ has great authority and he gives that authority to us. But demons recognise that. They've got no misunderstanding here. In some ways the demon has more faith than many Christians. They recognise the power of God and they cry out in terror when they see Jesus Christ. We need to have more of the fear of God in our lives to realise just the power that God has given us so that we may take that message and that authority into that world. He is not safe, but he is loving. There's two propositional statements about God in the Bible. One we heard last week, God is spirit, from 1 John 4, sorry, uh, 1 John, um, sorry, John 4, verse 24, says God is spirit. And elsewhere in 1 John 4, verse 8, it says God is love. God is love. So we know that our God is, is a powerful God, a mighty God. He has great authority, but behind that authority is his love. And we read about the story of the man who was in the synagogue, who was um, demon-possessed, and who the demon uh, called out to Jesus. And Jesus then commanded the demon to come out to this man. And we're told that the, the demon threw the man to the ground. But the demon came out without injuring the man. And here you see both the authority and the love of Jesus working. The authority of Jesus in commanding the Spirit to come out that man. The Spirit had no choice, it had to leave and it did. But Jesus ensured that that Spirit did not further damage that man. So it came out without injuring him. In the time of Jesus, there were many charlatans who went around pretending to be able to cast people out and they would do wild and wacky things to try and demonstrate their ability to have powers over evil spirits and often it was nothing more than just a fantasy, just a pretense. Jesus says it and it happens because he is the Son of God. 
And so we see the authority in the, in the, in the um, presence of Jesus and we see the authority also in the teaching of Jesus. And we find there's two verses in here, verse 32 and 36, that tell us the reception of his words. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. In verse 36, all the people were amazed and said to each other, what words these are! With authority and power he gives orders to impure spirits and they come out. You see, it wasn't just the presence, but the words of Jesus to have power. What he said caused a stir. What words these are. There's a clue in that, because the word there for words is that famous Greek word logos. What logos these are. What words, and of course we know that Jesus doesn't just speak words, he is the word. What do, we, what do we read in John 1 verse 1? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is the Word of God. He is the Logos. He doesn't just speak. He is the teaching. His life is the teaching. The way he lived is the teaching. We learn by looking not just or listening to his words. We look at his life and his life shows us the way we need to live. And his teaching was very different to the rabbis of that time. Because the rabbis normally teach by referencing other rabbis. They would always say, so Rabbi Joshua would say, Rabbi so-and-so Himalaya would say, Rabbi so-and-so would say. And their, their authority always came in referencing other rabbis that had gone before them. That's the way they had power. Their knowledge was displayed in their ability to actually support their arguments but referring to other rabbis. But Jesus didn't do this. He never once speaks of another rabbi in whom gives the authority to speak. Jesus would say, I say to you. He spoke from his presence because he was the Son of God. He was the Word of God. The authority was not in reference to some ancient dusty rabbi. His authority was in God himself because he was the living Word of God. The authority of God was in who he was, not simply in what he said. He had a unique authority. He was speaking as no other. And so when Jesus leaves his synagogue, when he encountered a demoniac, he goes to Capernaum, which is a seaside town on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And he goes to a fisherman called Peter. This is possibly the first encounter he has with Peter. Peter at this stage is not a disciple, he's just a fisherman who invites the rabbi into his house for a Sunday lunch, in effect. Sabbath lunch. And we're told that he goes in there now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever and they asked Jesus to help her. A high fever is actually a medical term. You, you only get this when you look at the Greek um, because there's two types of uh, fever as, as uh, accounts by a very famous doctor called Galen um, whose medical practices, by the way, undergirded me- medicine in the Europe until the 18th century which is quite incredible for about 2,000 years. But, um, and high fever refers to a serious fever, one, one that uh, can be quite dangerous. And so we're told he went in to see her and he bent over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And she got up at once and began to wait on them. See, Jesus has such authority. He can even rebuke illness, which is quite incredible. Because illness is not in this world because God wants it to be in this world. It's in this world because of fallenness, because of sin. It's a consequence of sin. So when the new order comes, when Jesus returns and he establishes a new world, there'll be no more illness. Because illness isn't part of God's perfect plan for us. 
and sickness and getting old is not part of God's perfect plan for us. One day we're told in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, we should all be changed. Incredible what happens during the service, won't it? I'll try and make sure it doesn't go on that long. But what an incredible thing. God changes us instantly now. You could be sitting there in the pew suffering with a backache because your lower vertebrae begin to seize up because you're old. And in the twinkling, Jesus could come and suddenly you're sitting there in a brand new body. That's what the Bible says. And all those aches and, you know, and the problems you get with your eyes and your ears as you get older, they'll all be gone. You won't, you'll be dancing out of a church if Lord Jesus came during this service because you'll be instantly returned to the perfect you in terms of your physical ability and anatomy. In an instant, we're told, in the twinkling of an eye. And so Jesus rebuked the illness in her and it left. Not only did it leap, did it, did it leave her, but she leaps out of bed. It's incredible. It does what a mother often does. She immediately begins to wait on them. Jesus has gone round there for a meal and he heals her, not for her food, but she, as soon as she's, well, she's so well, she gets out of bed and says, oh, says I, must, I must feed you, Rabbi. And she goes straight to the kitchen and begins to prepare some food. That's some healing. And Jesus rebukes things that aren't part of the God-given order. And so we'll find later on, um, in, 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 in Matthew's Gospel, for example, he rebukes wind and waves. And you have the healing or, um, uh, uh, taking place of a storm. When the wind and the waves are overwhelming the boat, he stands up. He just doesn't tell the wind and the wave to go. He rebukes the winds and the wave because they're being destructive. And we're told then it all becomes calm. Just in Genesis, when God speaks, his creation listens and his creation comes into being. And so when Jesus speaks healing into this woman's life, or healing into a storm, it becomes calm immediately. So when he speaks to the demons, the demons leave because they have no ability to resist the authority or the power of Jesus. And it's little wonder that later on in John's Gospel we read this, no one ever spoke the way this man does. Why? Because Jesus is the Word. He is the teaching He didn't reference other rabbis because he was the ultimate rabbi. Any other person had less authority than he had. Had nothing in comparison to the authority of Jesus Christ. So why talk about another rabbi when he is the ultimate rabbi? He is the greatest rabbi. He is the greatest teacher. I wonder if you value his teaching. I wonder if you crave to read his teaching day by day. You know, we do live in an age where Christians seem to be weaker. And we're not talking about this church, we're talking about all churches in this country. Christians seem to be weaker. And one of the reasons for that is because people don't take seriously this book anymore. Don't even carry it around with them. This is my Bible that Fiona gave us on our first anniversary. Inside it's going going brown, the pages, because they've been turned so many times. I know Christians in this church have got Bibles that are falling apart. I like that wonderful uh, quote that, you know, Bible, Bibles that are falling apart are owned by Christians who aren't. And if your Bible is pristine and new and, and good looking, it's not a good sign. Because we need to make sure that is in here and not merely on the shelf in our homes. The Daily Telegraph conducted, um, reported on a survey conducted by the Church of England on the 14th of September 2017. 
and the religious correspondent wrote this majority of Church of England Christians don't read the Bible the church's own polling has revealed figures show that 60% of self-declared followers of the church admit that they never read the Bible and 36% say they never attend church one in three say they never pray I don't know how you define what being a Christian is but it seems if you don't do any of those things I'm really remark- you know, it's like saying I'm a footballer but I never kick a ball around how can you be a Christian and not read you the word of God or worship with his people or pray and talk to him what defines our Christianity if it doesn't have those things as recently this, as this year 29th of Jan 2019 Premier Christian Magazine produced an article that says this the survey found out that most Christian millennials in the UK 51% engage with the Bible a few times a year or less only 9% read the Bible every day and a mere 13% look at the scriptures a few times a week if those statistics don't shock you I suggest reading that paragraph again if you take your faith seriously then you will take reading the Bible seriously because you cannot be a Bible believing Christian and know what Jesus speaks if you don't actually read this book if we don't read the Gospels, if we don't talk to the Lord Jesus in prayer, how can we be a good Christian? How can we understand what Christianity is unless we know our Bibles and read our Bibles? Show me a Christian who doesn't read their Bible and I'll show you a Christian who's not living the way they ought. Show me a Christian who's too busy to pray and I'll show you a Christian who's too busy. One of the problems is, is the modern belief is that our faith is a hobby. It is not a hobby. It is a way of life. And when Jesus comes again, he's not going to come and judge those who were good at the hobby and those who weren't good at the hobby. He's going to come and judge the living and the dead. And it will not be like a test, like when you, when you do, do, do a hobby sport and you try and prove how good you are. When Jesus comes again, it is serious. And we need to make sure and demonstrate and prove our salvation in this life. We need to get to grip with Jesus, with his word, so his word can get to grip with us. Because, brothers and sisters, you and I have authority in the name of Jesus. We forget that as Christians, there's a spiritual battle taking place around this town 24-7, 365 days a year. There's a work taking place, a spiritual battle, And we should be at the forefront of it as warriors of Jesus Christ, declaring his name and having his name on our banner. You see, it's with good reason that the devil is called Satan. Satanus, Satanus in in Greek, literally means enemy. You can't make a friend with the devil because his name actually means enemy. It's It's the opposite of friend. You make a friend with the devil, you're making a friend with with something that's going to destroy you. He is the enemy. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2, verse 1 to 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. When people are disobedient, it's not simply because they're following their own way, they're following the way of the spirit of the air. Satan. And we tend to forget this. We tend to think we're enlightened people and we are educated people and I'm educated. But it doesn't mean I don't recognise what's going on in this world. 
and that there's a dark, evil force at the heart of our society, at the heart of our world, that causes our wars, that causes suffering, that causes trafficking, that causes the death of those 39 people in Grays in Essex. That's not a work of God. That's a work of Satan. And we need to open our eyes, brothers and sisters, and see we need to engage with this work and be believers who go out there and fight for the name of Jesus because he has given you authority. Why is it that the demon that first saw Jesus cried out, Go away! He was scared. And when Christians go out and declare the glory of God and speak about him and bring prayer and presence into this world, Satan is scared. Satan is a created person. He is a fallen angel. And he is not bigger or more powerful than Jesus. Remember the temptations? What's one of the temptations? Satan offers Jesus authority. We're told the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kings of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority if you just worship me. But Jesus knew Satan didn't have that authority. It wasn't his to give. He's a liar. Exactly, Stuart. Exactly, Stuart, that's right. He was lying, as he always does. And when Satan offers us and tempts us and offers us authority, but that stops us living in the way we should do as Christians, says, you can have this if you just work a few more Sundays, if you give, give up from those, go in those meetings and, and give more time to me, I'll make sure you get success in your career. Satan's offering you something he can't deliver. Real authority comes from Christ by bearing his name and following his way and living by his truth. Paul writes later on in Philippians, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, but at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He has the name above every name, which means you as Christians carry the name above every name. You have real power, as that hymn says, in the name of Jesus. Where does that power come from in Jesus? He lived a certain way. How do we get that power? We follow the example of Jesus. We're told in verse 32, at daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. He began his day in prayer. He left the crowds, the halls, and plugged himself into God and said, Father God, give me the power for this day. His power came from his relationship with his father. If you want authority in your life and power in your life, you've got to pray day by day, not once a week at church, not once or twice an evening, but every day plug yourself into God. You can do it while you're driving, you can do it while you're walking. I suggest you give a special time to God and just have a time in the morning where you sit down with a cup of tea and just read the Bible and ask to speak to God. But you can also pray to God throughout your life, but make sure you find God in the solitary place, the undistracted place. That's what he did. Day by day. Day by day, plugged himself into Jesus. Marshal Foch was the commander-in-chief of Allied forces during the First World War. He was a Frenchman. And in one, one very important meeting a staff conference during World War I, it was just about to begin and Marshal Fock was not there, they couldn't find him anywhere and they began to ask the other officers if anyone knew where he was and no one knew, knew where he was and then suddenly one of the other officers said, hey, he says, uh, 
says, I think I'm no, I may know where to find him. And this junior officer got hold of the complete command staff of the, the Americans, the British and the French and they, they followed this, um, this junior officer out the command the headquarters building and went round the side and then there, there, next to it was a ruined chapel that had been bombed, shelled during the war. And then they went into the ruined chapel and beside the shattered altar there was Marshal Ferdinand Fock. He was kneeling by the altar praying to God. He was a Christian. And he knew that he could only do the business of that day if he spent that time in God's presence, getting the power and authority he needed to lead the armies of the Allies during the First World War. Jesus sought God out in a solitary place, we're told. That's where his power and authority came from, in his relationship with his Father. And we're told earlier on in this chapter, also his relationship to God came from his daily attendance, his weekly attendance at the synagogue. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. People, if we give up worshipping and going to church, if we give up praying, is it any wonder we lack authority in our lives? Because it's not your authority, it's not my authority. It comes from him. And the more we plug ourselves into God, the more we make God the centre of our lives the more we will have power in our lives. You worship the Son of God. You follow Jesus Christ. He has a name above every name. At that name, every knee shall bow. That's you carrying that name. You have authority. Authority that comes from Jesus. Let's take that seriously. Let's pray. Let's read the Word of God. Let's learn from Him. Let's be empowered by Him. And let's change this town and this county and this country and this world in his name, the most mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn, Safe in the Shadow, number 2991.